I love doing this podcast. Broadcasting our hangouts with friends from home like Nick Sewell, Damien Abraham, and Brendan Canning, it's just fun to shoot the shit and put it out there for the world to hear. Of course, the more covert reason for doing this is to have an excuse to meet people I've admired and respected for a long time, like Scott Thompson and Henry Rollins. It's great when you put a lot of work into something and it yields an entire day where you hang out with Scott Thompson. Well, this episode with author Gordon Corman is exactly why I do this podcast. Back in episode number 25 with graphic illustrator Gary Texali, we were talking about the children's book Gary put out a couple of years ago called This Is Silly, and talk turned to Gordon Corman. Being huge Corman fans, Nick Flanagan and I both agreed that it would be quite a coup if we could somehow nab him onto our lowly podcast. The next day, I sent an email out to Gordon and he surprisingly responded. Email correspondence, while being sporadic, lasted a few months until we were finally able to nail down a date and managed to snag CBC Music's Vish Khanna, another Cormanite, if you will, for the discussion. A talk, due to our far-reaching locales, that ended up taking place on Skype. Yes, it's another Skype podcast, since Corman lives in Long Island, far from his Thornhill, Ontario beginnings, and Vish was in, of all places, Guelph, Ontario? Now, Gordon Corman is an author. He writes novels for young adults. He writes for kids. What is the tie-in for him being on our podcast? Nick, Vish, and myself grew up reading his books. For almost 35 years, Corman has published over 75 books and sold 7 million copies worldwide. What's so fascinating about Corman was that he wrote his first book called This Can't Be Happening at McDonald Hall, when he was just 12 years old. His books like Who Was Bugs Potter and No Coins, Please are some of my favorite books I've ever read in my life as they made such huge impressions on me as a little kid, as you will hear on the podcast very shortly. Corman's influence on all three of our lives speaks for itself. We all write for a living. Vish writes for the CBC. Nick has written for various weeklies and writes for television. And I write for various rock magazines and the Huffington Post. I think we are all in agreement that Corman was an early initiator in all that way back then. There have been big rock people on this podcast, super famous, funny people on this podcast, but no previous guest has been able to elicit the, I can't believe you guys got him response like Gordon Corman has. Seriously, for a generation of kids who are now way into adulthood, he is a rock star to us, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not. Once we finished the podcast with Gordon, the three of us had a little powwow on Skype, and we all agreed that it was a wonderful, awesome thing that had just happened, mainly pleasing the little kid inside us who loved his books. Once again, I have to thank our wonderful sponsors, Blue Mic Microphones. Your Yeti mics helped immensely making this podcast happen. Skull Candy Headphones for the Mixmaster mic headphones I used during its taping as well. And of course, Gordon and Vish for joining Nick and I on this. Okay, here we go. Gordon Corman is this episode's guest on the official Danko Jones podcast, and it starts now. Hello. 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 
Hi, guys. Well, it is a first for the podcast, but we've got a four-way conference call. Everybody is in different cities or different places. Gordon, you're in New York? Yeah, uh, Long Island, just outside New York. And Vish is in Guelph. That's right, I'm in Guelph. Nick and I are in Toronto, downtown and uptown. So between the four of us, we're very far apart. But we had to do this podcast today because, because Nick, Vish, and myself are huge fans of yours. That's awesome. Thank you, guys. Lifetime fans. It's a thrill to speak to you again, Gordon. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, one of the things that, that's sort of been happening to me lately is um, I sort of have developed this, this, uh, these kinds of like waves of, of adult fans, which is kind of something that you never expect to do when you write kids' books. But, you know, time marches on and eventually your, your fan base grows up. Well, the idea to have you on our podcast came when we were speaking with another guest, Gary Taxali, uh, on a previous podcast. Your name was dropped, and then Nick and I thought it would be an amazing idea to, to try and hunt you down, which I did. I was surprised <laughs> I got a reply from you, and here we are. Well, Vish found me already, though, right? <laughs> yeah, Vish beat us to, to the whole thing, but, you know... It's oh, be well, this is what I do. This is I, I'm bound to be a thorn in your side for the rest of time, Danko. That's just that's just how it's going to be. Now, the, the thing is, I, I had this book club and I have this book club on CBC, and it just got to it. There's one day where I'm like, who do I really want to talk to? Who who do I really want to uh, feature on this book club? And I'm like, the one of the biggest influences in my entire life is Gordon Corman and and his books, and I have this power. What am I going to do with this power? And so I reached out, and Gordon was very, very forthcoming, very nice. And we featured uh, one of his recent books, Born to Rock, which is this amazing story of a preppy kid who discovers, you know, he's, he's like an Ivy League college-bound kid, uh, going to go to business school or something, and he discovers his father is like the most notorious frontman for a punk band in the world. And I was like, see, this is, it's amazing that Gordon, you your interest in music and sort of anti-authority, it appeals to me and comedy. It really appeals to me and people like like Danko and Nick, I think, would would agree. And I'm I'm curious, can you talk a bit about that? Where does that interest for you come from? Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, first of all, let me just say that I appreciate the fact that you said I'm one of the biggest influences in your life, but but. Um, I, you know, I, I'm thrilled at the fact that you like my books, but there's no way that my <laughs> books have been one of the biggest influences in your life unless you've devoted your life to panty rays. But, uh, <laughs> you don't want to know. I don't know like, you, don't, you don't want to know the things, the amount of similar influences. In my opinion, I, mean, I guess maybe it's the, the subversive element of it. You, you know, just the idea that, um, that um, not so much that you have to, rebel against authority, but that it, it's just natural to question it and, and rebel against it where appropriate. Um, 
you know, obviously the, the level of rebellion in the books you read when you're in grade five is, is probably different than the, the kind of things that appeal to you as you, as you get older. But, um, but that, that's always been, um, been something that, that I, that I've written about is, is challenging authority and questioning it. Um, and, uh, and just being funny, you know, I mean, I, I've always been one of these these guys who loved humor. I mean, my favorite uh, book is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and my favorite TV show is Seinfeld, and my favorite movie is Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And, and you know, I've just grown up uh, with, with a real appreciation of humor. Right. Well, I, I would also say that on top of that stuff, which is all super true, um, you know, and, and identifiable stuff that, that people love easily. There, you had the aspect where you were writing as a teenager or teenagers for a period of time before you grew up, of course. And uh, so that's, that, that's obviously like a huge uh, inspiration, I think, to anybody who is young at that time. And on top of that, it's weirdly, it almost seems, not to keep it punk, but... Uh, it almost seems like DIY, even if it is or it isn't, there's some idea like a, it's very different, I think, the idea of like a teen humor writer versus, say, Justin Bieber, you know? Or... Yeah. No, no, I'm with you on that. I mean, look, yeah. uh, I was obviously a kid when I started writing. It was a school project. Um, right. There was there was a lot of, um, there was a bit of a do-it-yourself vibe to it uh, and, and also a vibe of kind of randomness, right? Because it really was a project. I mean, this can't be happening at McDonald Hall. It was a project that I did because, you know, the track and field coach very randomly had to teach English in our class. And he sort of had no idea what to tell us to do and kind of said, work on whatever you want for the rest of the year. And so um, from February to June, we just had this time to uh, to write. Um, I, I mean, I, I, the connection the music that that um, that Vish was mentioning, I mean, uh, I don't think that comes from anything else other than being a fan, you know, because because I'm not a musician myself. Um, but uh, you write about what you like, you know, and and I mean, um, I wrote an adventure trilogy uh, called Dive about scuba diving kids, and you know, a lot of those scenes were were about sharks because. I, you know, I was just one of those kids who loved Jaws and, and loved sharks. And I think that when, when it comes to references to music, whether it's uh, Born to Rock, which is more recent, or Who is Bugs Potter, which was written when I was a kid still, um, it's just something that, that I had some enthusiasm for. And you mentioned you were um, uh, you're a music fan. What's the music that you listen to now? What was the music you were listening to when you wrote Bugs Potter? Um, I, I don't know whether I need to, whether I need to be embarrassed to admit this, but in high school I was a big Queen fan. So, I love um, Queen. So I, I pictured Roger Taylor when I pictured the drumming. Wow! So um, Roger Taylor is 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 the inspiration for Bugs Potter. Well, I mean, Bugs Potter was a kid, but I pictured his his um, him at the drums when, when I pictured like a really great drummer kind of kind of going wild and then um you know i mean i think that i got to new york 
uh, as, as a freshman in, in university, uh, slightly after the whole punk thing was going on at CBGB and in, in, in downtown uh, New York. So, um, so I just sort of missed all that. And I think that rather than being a part of it, we, we kind of felt like we, we just came, came in on the tail end of a lot of, of great things in, in, in music. But, um, but I tend to be someone who gets to things late and, and just misses them, you know? Um, so for example, um, I, I noticed in your book, you, you mentioned, um, Rick Rubin, mm-hmm. uh, that Rick Rubin was actually a guy in my dorm. I, I lived on the same floor <laughs> as, as Rick Rubin in Weinstein Hall in 1981. And he used to uh, DJ dances in our dorm and play rap in 1981. And we thought he was crazy. <laughs> we were like, what is this What is this music you are playing and why, why, why should we think it's music? But actually, um, he was working with guys like Run DMC and... Um, is it Adam Horowitz oh, yeah, and and and, um, yeah, and, and yeah. LL Cool J like yeah. in our dorm while while we were kids and we had absolutely no idea that it was going on. So I my cred as like someone who, <laughs> who knows a ton about music is, is very very. That's like, interesting. That's interesting to me because every sort of topic that you cover in your books, you seem to do like really thorough research. I mean, again, I was a kid when I read most of them, but like. Some of the characters are, in fact, a lot of the characters are really extraordinary at the things that they do. I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about where that comes from. Is that just a a storytelling device, like, you know, to to make the characters as interesting as possible? Or or do you do have a deep fascination for people who are kind of geniuses? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that... um... Yeah, particularly when you're writing for kids, you know, there's there's a tendency to sort of feel like when you're a kid that um, that you sort of don't live in the real world. You live kind of in this in this kind of um, limited simulation of life, and, and and you know, kind of like a training video in, in a way. And and I think so. It's obviously really impressive to kids when um, when what you do suddenly makes an impression in the adult world. And, and when you break out of that sort of kid kind of microcosm and, and, and get into the real world, you know, that Bugs Potter is just basically doing what he loves and being a fan, he has absolutely no idea that he has become this, this massive craze going on through, uh, through, through a city, you know, or, um, or the idea that these... Um, you know, that that things just get out of hand and, you know, something that McDonald Hall is doing very, very randomly um, just ends up reaching, making the news in, in Canada or, or, or Toronto or the, or the world. Um, and, and I think that that's been kind of a recurring theme in my books, whether I'm writing for, for kids or teenagers, uh, whether it's humor or, or adventure, uh, just the idea that, that, you know, kids sort of performing and being a force in the adult world. Hmm. Um, the ones that I remember really loving, and I think I read them when I was more 13 or 14, maybe a bit younger than that, but, but they were like later ones that were the uh, Don't Care High and A Semester in the Life of a Garbage Bag. I remember right. really obsessing over those books. 
for some reason because I really identified with whatever the shift was from like the uh, the McDonald Hall books, which was total hijinks. And generally, a lot of the books were hijinks. These ones were more about people who like did not fit in and were in a very stressful situation because of that. I, was that? Uh, I mean, how did how did you kind of wind up moving to that? that well, I wanted to try it. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I find, um, and and this is something I'm sure you guys have experienced in your own careers, you know, different as they may be, that like. Um, the, the one enemy is just getting bored. You know, like if, if you're bored writing, you write boring. And, and, you know, that's the one, that's the one kind of thing that, that I, that I, that I would say that I just please never let me do is just write boring. And, uh, so I'd written for a certain age group and I wanted to try something a little bit different. And at the time I was probably a big fan of stuff like kind of a more ironic genre of, of, of adult fiction. You know, I loved catch 22 and, 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 and I wanted to um, to just play around with maybe a less kind of slapstick oriented humor, which which is really kind of what I had been writing up until that point. Uh-huh. And uh, and and that's really where Don't Care High and and those early kind of teen books came from. Hmm. Um. How I got into uh, Gordon's books was through Bugs Potter. I I worshipped that book. Uh, when when I was in grade school, there was um, these uh, little pamphlets that they would pass out, and then you could order the books, and then you get it a couple of weeks later delivered to your classroom. Right, Scholastic book orders. Yeah, and it was just yeah. a little treat that you know you could get to go home with at school and the Bugs Potter book, I believe was part of that. And the thing that really attracted me to it was the cover. There was a drummer. Uh, and I, I already had a, a, a keen interest in, in rock music. So I wasn't really allowed to listen to rock music when I was a kid. So I could get by with reading this book. And when I read it and the story, when I finally started playing clubs in Toronto myself, which is what the book is based on, I remember distinctly thinking to myself, I'm Bugs Potter now. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Bugs Potter. Here I am. I'm not playing drums, but I'm in these Toronto clubs that I'd read about when I was, I think I was eight or nine years old. And your book was the first glimpse into that whole world. So I think That's you great. owe my parents an apology. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I wonder how many. And, uh, and also when I was, oh, go on, sorry. No, no, I'm just kind of picturing you like at some festival in Heidelberg in front of 15,000 people and, and, and trying to like trace that from um, – from like Bugs Potter. <laughs> it was more playing Lee's Palace and Sneaky D's like in the beginning. I mean, the, the book, right. I believe, is set in the Toronto club scene. Yeah. yeah. So when I was doing it the first few years as in a band and we were, you know, I, I grew up in Scarborough. So I'd have to go downtown, borrow my dad's car, you know, and then drive back to Scarborough. I kind of felt like Bugs Potter. 
who was sneaking around doing this as well. Right. Um, I, kinda, I also remember visiting my cousins in that Scarborough area and thinking we'd always take like Highway 48. And I remember McDonald Hall. Wasn't that off of Highway 48? That or was off of Highway 48. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm older than you guys. And that Highway 48 in Markham, it's all built up now. But um, it used to be fields. You know, like I went to Thornlee and up in, in Thornhill. And um, when I was there, we, you know, it's it's like um, it's south of Highway 7. But, I mean, you'd look out your window in, in high school, this in like the late 70s, early 80s, and there's cows, you know. So I, I sort of pictured um, pictured like McDonald Hall being a little bit outside Toronto, but at a yeah. time when Toronto was smaller and mm-hmm. and there were, you know, kind of still farms in the places where it's all built up now. You know, th- this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, and I, you know, I think Danko's saying something similar in his own way. Uh, Gordon, you know, you kind of deflected my my suggestion that you were an early influence, and I I can understand why you might do that at a modesty, but I, I mean, I, I will say, and this isn't just to flatter you. I think you know it was what you your your work at the time when when it when it first hit us. I think it was more impactful than maybe you recognize on some level. I think as a comedic influence, the books were really heavy in, in, in a way for me. Like, <laughs> but you are also... It's, it's easy to cite... When I, when, I, when I talk about comedic influences, I talk about Letterman and Saturday Night Live and all those things. But honestly, like you impacted the way I spoke when I was a kid. Like, <laughs> you know, when you're a kid, you're impressionable when you read things like that. And I, no, I think... I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be falsely modest or anything. I think that one of the things about... What, what they call middle grade fiction, which is not not the teen stuff, but when you're, let's say, you know, as Danko said, like eight, nine, 10, 11, it's really the time where you become in charge of your own opinion, you, you yeah. know, and, <clears throat> and you like the books that you like, not the books that your mom does amazing voices when she reads out loud to you or your teacher really kind of sells you on. And I think that that those early choices that you make, that deciding what to love, uh, stay with you for a really long time. And and that's one of the reasons why I think that um, middle grade writers uh, have this this really loyal fan base, even as your fans kind of get grow up and, and become adults, because th- those were sort of like the first real choice that you make as a consumer of the arts. Right. I was thinking about Wes Anderson films. In fact, when Rushmore came out, when I first saw Rushmore, I remember some friends and I were talking and we're like, this is basically a Gordon Corman story. And (laughs) it really reminded me of it. And I'm curious if you can talk a little bit. The stories that you wrote and are continue to write are so evocative and vivid. They seem like they could have real cinematic potential, but I don't know that you've had a great deal of uh, you know, made inroads in that realm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Have you had much? Uh, uh, have you have you worked with in the film realm at all? Well, I, I was actually a film major at NYU, which was kind of the thing to be in, in the '80s. But um, I um, I've never had a feature film based on one of my books. Um, I had a, a TV show on the Disney Channel for a few years um, back in the late no, probably the early 2000s. Um, and then, um, a newer book of mine called Swindle is, is being done by uh, Nickelodeon right now. 
Um, I've, I've not had a theatrical film. It, you know, I mean, some of that, as I'm sure you guys know, is just the, the kind of like the law of averages in the movie business that um, mm. they get out there and they they just option tons of stuff and and don't really make most of it, um, particularly for film. I mean, you know, you I'm always amazed when I watch the Oscars and they sort of say, you know, of the 274 qualifying movies this year, and I sort of think that's it, you know, like <laughs> probably 6,000 kids books were published that year, and that's just books for kids. Um, but uh, but we, we certainly sell film rights a lot, and uh, we, get, we get a lot of interest. We, we just have not had an actual movie made. I did love uh, Rushmore, by the way. Yeah, did you see? Did you see any? Did you see where I'm coming from with that? Do you see any connection? Yeah, well, I don't remember it. Um, I don't remember it that specifically. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a private school story uh, with with a lot of humor and and a very um, quirky and and powerful protagonist. You know, so so I see it from that standpoint. Um, you, you know, I think that. I think that sometimes when, you know, having been through the process of, of watching my books kind of optioned and developed for film and then sort of seeing why, why it falls apart. <laughs> um, I think that, um, that sometimes, first of all, I think that sometimes the, um, you know, like a dramatic structure and, and, and a novelistic structure are kind of different. And I think that maybe it's as simple as, um, it's as simple as, um, you know, mine don't don't go into the, the, the sort of three-act dramatic structure as easily as some novels do. But, mm-hmm. but I think also, um, you know, I, I had an experience. I wrote this book called uh, Son of the Mob, which is sort of the idea that this really straight high school kid, his dad is, is basically a professional gangster, you know, and we just got tons of, of film interest in that book. And we sold it to, I think, Miramax, like right off the bat. And they hired these guys to, to, to write a script. And it just seemed like such a no-brainer. And and then suddenly you realize it's like, okay, here's this book. And who are you making it a movie for? You know, if you're going to make it a movie for teenagers, it needs to be a lot edgier and a lot racier th- than my book. And yet, if you're going to make it for kids, then it probably needs to be a lot cleaner and a lot more wholesome, you know. And it, it sort of feels like, you know, there's nothing against the book, but there's sort of nowhere for it to go in the existing categories of the film world. And I think that happens a lot with, with books being adapted for film. Well, uh, like, I... Is that an interesting thing, just in general? Whereas, I there's something with the the tone of your books that is, it does. I think it does make kids feel a little bit more uh, in charge or whatever when they're reading it. Conveying that on screen now, I feel like that's something that existed sort of during Damn by Me, Explorers, all of these '80s movies, you know. And right. uh, and now you know you have Super Eight, but it's all very controlled. Like there's there's much less. There aren't that many films like that. You're never going to have a movie with the Goonies thing. Um, that whole early, first half of Goonies where it's kids actually behaving like a bit like heightened versions of you and your friends or something. Right. And, I mean, I think every now and then, 
every now and then somebody does it and it sort of reinvents itself in a different way, you mm. know. But, but the film business is so reactive to, um, you know, something comes out and it makes a lot of money. And, and then, you know, everything gets optioned after that. Like I remember in, 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 um, during the John Hughes time, like so many of my books got optioned. Um, and then eventually, you know, a couple of those movies come out, somebody loses their shirt on them and, and it's like, no, we're not, we're not going to make that anymore. Right. Um, you know, and then for a while, when Stand By Me came out, uh, it was all about, like, kids, but from sort of a nostalgia land, you know, like the, right. the adult Did... looking back on, on that. Um, you know, and then when Diary, you know, more recently, when Diary of a Wimpy Kid came out, it, you know, it's suddenly like the ascendancy of middle school as a cultural phenomenon. So everyone gets out there and they option all the, the middle school stories they, they can find. Um, but then, you know, if a couple things come out and they're disappointing, everybody kind of backs off. I mean, I think that the film business is just also some of this is the quirks of of the movie business, which is just kind of weird. <laughs> I think I, I think this is the time to write a Stand By Me esque nostalgia thing of a, a hundred year old Bruno sitting <laughs> on an iPad in the future, being like, I remember. Everything but my last day at McDonald's Hall, and it's amazing. totally. You know what else is big these days? Reunion tours, Gordon. You could get the Bugs Potter gang back together. Take them out on the road. That would go. Uh, really oh, what happened to Bugs? Yeah. Did Bugs go platinum eventually? No, Bugs. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, we never knew if he became a professional musician. Yeah, he certainly had the talent to. Did you not have another Bugs? book in you after live at Nick and Ninny? Yeah, well, no, there, was, there was a sequel. There was a sequel called Bugs Potter live at Nick and Ninny. Yeah. But, live uh, at Nick and Ninny. Uh, I read, yeah, but yeah. after that, the character dropped off. Yeah. Uh, you know, you just sort of go in a different direction. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, and it, it's sort of a different sensibility sort of sells. I mean, the one we always come back to is McDonald Hall, and I, you know, I know there's always like a lot of talk about doing McDonald Hall the next generation, you know. So right. I don't know, maybe doing it as either creating a new cast of characters, or you know, maybe Bruno is a teacher or or the headmaster or something, and you you sort of kick everybody up a, a generation. But I, I don't know. I mean, wait a minute, okay. is this oh, a? Are we in the middle of a brainstorming Gordon Corman session right now? <laughs> yeah, because check this out. What about if it's actually about adult Bruno and Boots who are teaching at McDonald Hall, and it's about them pranking their own faculty? Yeah, that could be that way. Or just, you know, I mean, or the sheer irony of them as, as teachers, you know, uh, getting kind of, get, you know, and their reaction to, to a new generation of Bruno and Boots coming up through the school, you know. Right. Um, sometimes the kids who are like that become the adults who have the least tolerance of it. Yeah, right. Yep. And then he goes to Mr. Sturgeon, who's kind of in the uh, uh, the Hanzo sword kind of uh, uh, category. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, he's, he's, like, he's like the Yoda of, of, of teaching. <laughs> and this is going to be great. I'm glad we're doing this brainstorming session, guys. Yeah, I really want to be in the thank yous. <laughs> or dedication, maybe? 
But, you know, I almost could see it, – it's funny you're talking about film so much, but it, it really I almost see if they're if – I mean, I know that you had some work uh, in terms of stuff being put on, on TV before, but uh, a Canadian-made McDonald Hall animated series, to me that's something that could happen. I can, I can almost see uh, the way it looks right now when, it, when I close my eyes, which might have to do right. with – and you know what? Um, we sold a film option on McDonald Hall maybe a year and a half ago oh. uh, to a Canadian producer. And you're talking about, I mean, the pub date on McDonald Hall, the first one, <laughs> 1978. So you know, the door is <laughs> never, never shut on this stuff. You, you know, um, you, you never yeah. know when something's going to come up. You know, I just read uh, I Want to Go Home again this week, and I'm telling you, it just it stands up so well. It, it's, it's remarkable. You're absolutely right. These, the, the doors never shut because I think the material is very strong. Well, you know, an example I – you mentioned I Want to Go Home. An example I always use to explain how hard it is to, um, to take a slapstick book and, um, and um, turn it into a movie is – there's that one scene, which is always really popular with kids, where um, Rudy and Mike are pulling out into the lake in a boat, and as they cast off the, tow the, the, the mooring line, Chip, their counselor, grabs it, and he gets towed, towed in the water, yeah. you know, basically like water skiing on his face. And, you know, I mean, in the, in the book, that is such a huge slapstick moment. You know, it really is. I mean, it's just a very kind of straight description of someone being towed across a lake, water skiing on their face. Um, you put that on film, and it actually takes place in about a second and a half, and it's it's pretty pretty lukewarm in terms of the slapstick stuff you see in movies. <laughs> you know, so I think sometimes th there's a need you know, to really, to really amp up the degree of like physical comedy in order to get the same result, you know, yeah. uh, than you get in the book. And I think that's probably an issue with, with, with converting my books to film as well. But you were recognized at a very early age. And how, how do you make that connection when you make these characters? Do you know what I mean? You mean today? Today. You were yeah. recognized when you were 14. You, got, you started getting awards when you were 17. So you were accomplished before you even reached 20 years old. And you yet know, you write I, yeah. about these kinds of characters. When you say, well, nobody knows how great a man I am but me. Yeah. Well, I love that. I mean, that's just, actually, come to think of it, I don't know if I've ever done that in a, in a, in a book. And that's a really good, that's a really good way to, that's a great character. Yeah. You know, that like just a, a certain amount of uh, pomposity, you know, and, um, and self-assurance, but, but also this kid who just nobody has any respect for. Um, it, it's just, you know, that's going to fit somewhere. 
that's going to keep fitting somewhere, you know, for, for a long time. Um, I mean, for me personally, you know, uh, um, I mean, as a kid, I was pretty awkward. And I think that, um, you know, when I look back at sort of some of the interviews I did when I was, you know, first published and, you know, I probably didn't even realize how big a dweeb I was at the time, um, <laughs> but I certainly appreciate it now in spades. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I actually feel, Danko, believe it or not, that that I am as in touch, if not more, with my audience today, and I'm going to be 50 this year, um, than I was when, when I got started as, as a kid. I, I know that when I first started um, you know, doing appearances with kids at schools and public libraries and bookstores, um, I mean, people always used to say to me, you know, like, wow, I mean, the kids love you because uh, they can relate to you. You, you know, they, 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 they see that you're very close to their age. And I actually think that, um, that I do better at those events today and, and, uh, and the kids respond to me more than, than back then. So, so I'm not sure how much of it was um, just being that age, you yeah. know? Um, and, and also, I mean, I think probably just, say that, that I was weird then um, is maybe to overstate it a little bit, you know, but um, but I was very, very uneasy with myself, you know, uh, like like many kids are. And uh, and I feel like one of one of the things why I'm one of the reasons why I'm in a better place, um, not necessarily as a as a writer, but as a as someone who you know appears in public and interacts with with fans today it's just because i am so much less uh uneasy with you know kind of comfortable mm -hmm. in my own skin right well you having heard you say this when i can't remember the exact book maybe it was one of the bruno and boots book but at the back of one of the editions that i had there was a picture of you i must have been in grade five or grade four and you looked like a rock star you had the 70s hair Part in the middle, the T-shirt with the button undone. Yellow, the yellow collared shirt. I have that same edition. Okay. And I was like, well, this guy knows about the rock scene for sure. <laughs> no, the, the, I don't know. That's, that, that's, uh, I can't even picture which picture. The yellow collared shirt? You had long shirt. hair. Um, you had I long hair. That, to be fair, I think it's a black and white photo. But It's I, a I black and white photo. And in my mind's eye... You've always had this long hair. When I think of Gordon Corman, I think of this dude with long hair writing books. There's a little bit of, a little bit <laughs> of well, Travolta. You saw me a minute ago, right? There's no hair there. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot about your past today. What's coming up next for you? Oh, um, I, I think I mentioned when, when we did our interview, The 39 Clues, which is that multi-author series that I've been a part of. Yeah. And, um, there is going to be one last sort of... Um, mini series of 39 clues so i'll be writing the, the final book in um in 39 clues and then i'm launching something new in the fall which i would love to tell you about but um my publisher seems to think that there's some value in keeping it a secret till the last minute so uh unfortunately i cannot do that right now
mean, I, you know, I, I always, I, I actually, I don't know if you ever heard of this book, Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing by Judy Bloom. One of my favorites. Oh, yeah. I love but Judy But I was actually Bloom. in grade four the year that that book came out. And I remember reading that book and sort of thinking, holy, you know, holy crap, this is this thing that's just for people like me. You know, the, the, yeah. this whole genre exists, like just for people like me. And, um, and I just love that kind of classic middle grade novel, right? Which is, you know, uh, The Great Brain and Old Beverly Cleary and oh, Beverly Judy Cleary. Bloom and Henry Reed's Big Show. And I think that one of the reasons why when I was in seventh grade and, and I had this chance to write anything I wanted, I wrote McDonald Hall, which really in a way looks and, and reads very much like a classic middle grade novel is because of reading and loving those books beforehand. Yeah. They were one of your only models, too, you know, in terms of reading. So you could hit it, that style, almost perfectly, probably. You know what I mean? Like, it, the amount of stuff that you read at that point was much less than now. So hitting, hitting that genre. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and, and I think, um, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, and I still think, like, I was not the greatest seventh grade writer, you know, in, in the history of the world. But I think that um, what I wrote was very doable, you, you know. And if you're like a seventh grade super genius and you love James Joyce and you try to write James Joyce when you're in seventh grade, you're going to fail, you know. <laughs> but if you try to write something that's way more doable, like like a, a Judy Bloomish or a, or a great brainish kind of kind of book, um, it was just I was in a unique situation where Scholastic opened up my packet, you know, read my my manuscript, which was typed by my mother, and uh, and just very naturally took a look at it and said, you know, wow, this is what we do. You know, this is exactly the kind of book that we publish, and uh, and so that's why I got lucky. So maybe less sixteen-year-olds uh, should start trying to write like Bukowski or Kerouac or Hunter Thompson when they first discover them. Exactly. No, I think that's that's totally true. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I I enjoyed our conversation very much, and thanks for doing this again, Gordon. It means a lot. Thank you very much. Yeah. No problem. It's good. It's good meeting all of you guys. Yeah. Yeah, You too. Maybe one of these days we'll all be in Toronto at the same time, and uh, I can somehow look you guys up. Yeah. That'd that'd be awesome. That'd be amazing. My friend has. I have a big fan friend who, who texted me a question. Can I ask okay. this question? Sure. Do you wear a tuxedo when you write so that the books stay classy? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know about that one. Uh, is he thinking about no coins, please? Is that the tuxedo connection? But anyway, it's really good talking to you guys. Thanks for, for, uh, for having not forgotten me. Absolutely. Oh, never, never. Never, ever, ever. And, and uh, you know, I'm just happy you're still, it's amazing that you're still, and again, as I said to Nick and, and Danko, like the newer books are, the, the newer books that I finally, you know, to be, as you can probably understand, people read your books, they grow a bit older, they probably stop. And in our case, we're revisiting some of them, but mm-hmm. your recent books are awesome too. So it's, it's been heartening to, to make that discovery, I suppose. Yeah, I'm, def- I'm definitely going to read uh, Born to Rock. Was that the name of yeah, uh, one of them? Rock. Yeah, I'm going to pick that up too. Yeah, looking forward to that one for sure. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Not a problem. Great talking to you guys. Thanks, okay, bye, Gordon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Happy New Year.